Well, hey, good morning, New Life East. How are we doing? Fantastic. Man, I am so honored to be up here today. And I just want to tell you guys, man, since my wife and I moved here, uh, it's been like a hundred or so days ago. Man, we have just felt so loved, so welcomed. And so I just want to say thank you for being the kind of church that can welcome in people. Um, And we are just so glad to be a part of New Life East. But I have to sort of give you a warning up front. Um, You know, I love to preach, but I am not Colin Stoddard. Um, I cannot play the keys and sing and plan a prairie party and kill a coyote and rock a handlebar mustache at any given moment. I can't do any of those things. So if you're going to be let down by that, I just want to lead with, I'm sorry. I also want to clarify though, I'm not Andrew Arndt, not even close. I can't get up here and pontificate about the beauty of all things in the world. I can't get up here every sermon, almost guaranteed, and bring out a poem that has inspired me. But I did this morning sit down knowing that I was preaching. I got my little extra sheet of paper too. And I wrote a poem for all of you. Are you ready for it? It's so good. Roses are red. Violets are not blue. And that's as far as I got. So with that said, we are going to continue in this series of conversations that we've been having called Who is God? And I've loved this because I believe truly, Andrew shared this quote from a man by the name of A.W. Tozer, that what comes into our minds when we think about God is in fact the most important thing about us. It transforms us. It shapes us. Sometimes for the worse and most of the time for the best. But what we believe about God shapes everything about who we are. And I loved one of the things that Andrew said, he sort of reminded us about, is that God throughout church history has been known by this word of Trinity. This idea that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are in fact one being dwelling in community with one another. And he reminded us that in fact the Trinity has a story. And what I love about the story of God is that it exists in this book that we have the ability to sort of walk around with and open and read and preach out of, which means that the story of God begins in the very beginning of the scriptures. And Andrew preached a great message last week to help us see this this sort of beauty of what it looked like when God set out to form the earth, right? You've heard the story, God, in the beginning, there was just God and God begins to form all of the beautiful things that we see. He makes night and day and mountains and streams and, and deer and dogs and we're unclear on cats, but he makes, he makes everything that we see and he looks at it and he says, man, this is good. And then he makes humanity. The person sitting next to you, rubbing shoulder to shoulder, he creates us and he looks at the world and then he says, man, this is very good. This is how the story of God starts. And if you're anything like me, whether you're sort of on the fence about God or you've been a a Christian for your entire life, that narrative about God is one that we can all sort of grab on and say, yeah, I like this. But what I want to talk about today is what happens when God begins to sort of relate to us, engage with us. Because see, I think for many of us, we hear about this God who is sort of big and creative and he he loves us and he's kind and we kind of grab a hold of that. But then we sort of hit our first speed bump when we start to ask the question of, well, what does God do when he comes to face, when he comes face to face with, well, me? 
when he comes face to face with the places that I've messed up, when he comes face to face with the places that I've sort of become fractured and broken, what does God do when he comes face to face with our failures? So I'll just clue you in. This morning, I want to ask the question, and I think it's an important question because it shapes the way we view God completely. It's this question. It's how does God respond to us when we fail? How does God respond to us when we fail? We're going to open up to Genesis chapter 3. But before we read there, I want to invite you to just pray with me this morning. God, we are so thankful that we can gather as a tribe of people who are seeking you. And God, what we're recognizing this morning is that your faithfulness is being put center stage today. Your present faithfulness is being put center stage. So God, would you help us to keep that in our minds as we answer this question, as we interrogate this question of what do you do when we are anything less than perfect? God, we ask that you would be in this place, that we would not leave wondering if you were here, but we would leave knowing that you, in fact, showed up in our lives. We ask all this in in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said, amen. Fantastic. Genesis chapter 3. Andrew asked me to preach for the first time, and he gives me a chapter with a talking snake. This can only go well. Genesis chapter 3, the scriptures say this, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now what's interesting is our our English translations do a bit of a weird thing with this. We sort of make it a dialogue, but what most Jewish scholars believe is that when the serpent asks this question, Eve doesn't wait for him to finish. She actually interrupts him. She interjects. She has this awareness that something sort of strange is going on. She interrupts him and then says to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. And you must not touch it, which he didn't say. She's added this in. Or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. A better way to say this is you will be full of all wisdom. You will know all things. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye... And also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it, which is important. She was not alone. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made covering for themselves, which fig leaves are not a comfortable leaf to wear as underwear. I don't think any leaf is. But can you imagine the time and the the sort of precision it would take to craft leaves into a full outfit? They've sat there in this for a little while. It says, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? Now this is just a weird part of the scriptures. If you didn't grow up in church, you still find this to be a weird part of the scriptures. There's a talking snake, there's naked people, there's, if we see it sort of like in infantile ways, there's like a red apple hanging from a tree. It's a very bizarre story. The unfortunate thing about this chapter in Genesis is that what has so often happened is it's been used as sort of an encyclopedia in ways. It's been used as like an answer to many questions. 
But for instance, plenty of people will read Genesis 3 and go, oh, look, it's all about humans and how messed up we are. Just watch the news. You see how messed up we are. It's about how silly and stupid and, and broken humanity is. This is what Genesis 3 is about. Or, or some people, in fact, and some people in really unfortunate circumstances have read this and used it to determine whose fault is it actually that the world is the way that it is. And in many difficult situations, people's stories I've heard, what has happened is that women have been sort of set aside as like the problem makers. I've even heard people in some traditions go as far to say, well, you know who ate the fruit? And it's been used to sort of abuse and undermine people. Uh, we've used it as a way to explain why we don't like snakes and why they need to like stay as far away from us as possible, or even why it's unacceptable to walk around naked. But we use it as sort of this like, well, let's just explain things about it. We make it very much a self-centered narrative. But it is, in fact, the beginning of the story of God. So what happens in this? These people are, are in the garden, this idyllic place, and it's placed in, in the Middle East as sort of the scriptures sort of paint it, and temptation sort of shows up in front of them. And what I find interesting about how this temptation plays out is not just what it says to us about us, because it does say some stuff, but what it actually says to us about how the world works and how it continues to work when temptation shows up and we inevitably fall into it from time to time. The first step in this sort of process or, or system or cycle that we see take place in the world is easy. It's, it's failure. We see failure show up. I mean, just look at those first verses. The serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say to you, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Which is important to recognize that the first form of temptation to sin and brokenness in the world is not violence. It's not hatred. It's not gossip. It's not, it, it's a lie about who God actually is. The question is, did God actually say this? There's no way that God actually said this. Many of us have had those moments. We've been on like the precipice of failure and we've gone, well, like, did God really say I can't like do this? This is the way the serpent in this story leads humanity to failure. He gets them not to question themselves. He gets them to question, is God really who he said he is? And this is the way that most sin and failure sort of shows up still in the world today. And before long, we can deceive ourselves into some really awful situations. The serpent sort of shifts tactics as he's doing it. Because the woman says, well, no, we, we can eat from the, the trees. There's just one tree, and it's in the middle, and we can't touch it. We can't eat it, or we die. And the serpent responds, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like who? God. The deception that takes place is not just, did God really say this? It's, can God actually be counted on to tell you the truth? Because if you eat this, you would actually be just like him. Which isn't it the constant temptation of us as humans to constantly find ways where we can control our lives? We can create something from nothing. In fact, it, in many ways, it's the American dream, right? 
to create something out of nothing. We, in many ways, have fallen into the deception that the same first two humans did, that maybe God is not telling us the truth. Maybe God is actually keeping something really good from us. Maybe you've had that thought recently. That moment where you look out across the scope of your career and you realize it hasn't quite panned out the way that you thought it would. You look at your family and you love your family, but you don't have the white picket fence, the white house with the black shutters, the nice income, the vacation spot. You don't have all those things. You think about your mental and emotional health over the last couple of years and it's depleted in such a significant way that you can't let it go. You, you start looking around to people that you go to church with or that you work with and you can't help but ask the question of God, are you keeping something good from me? I see other people with blessings in their lives. Are you just withholding goodness from me? This is the way that humanity steps into failure. Not by making some horrifying choice, but by starting to believe that God is not in fact as good as he claims to be. This is the temptation. That he is not who he says he is. That God has not kept his word. That he will not continue to keep his word. We just talked about God being faithful. That God is in, not, in fact not faithful at all. And the word that that the scripture writers have used throughout history to talk about what this sort of destructive independence is, is this three-letter word of sin. And for many of us, we hear that word and it sort of makes us like really tense because it's sort of been used in like a, a manipulative way or it's been sort of overly spiritualized so we don't really grasp it. But sin is not this overly demonic thing. Sin, the word in fact, is an archery term. It simply means to miss the mark. If you've ever gone like shooting with a bow, or which I haven't, but I've heard it's fun, um, and you're like aiming at a target, the idea of sin is that humanity has this, this tendency to, to never be quite able to hit the target right on the bullseye. Something is pulling us to the left. Something's pulling us to the right. We're shooting way over. We're not getting close to the target at all. This is the word that the scriptures use to talk about what this failure in our lives look like. It's sin. It's simply missing the mark. And I I would mess us all up if I tried to be a theologian and process the, the depths of this word and what it means for you and I and how it really plays out. But the The great writer and author C.S. Lewis, I think, does an incredible job of doing this. He writes this in Mere Christianity. He says, the moment you have a self at all, there's a possibility of putting yourself first, wanting to be the center, wanting to be God, in fact. That was the sin of Satan, and that was the sin he taught the humans. Some people think the fall of man has something to do with sex, but that is a mistake. What Satan put into the heads of our remote ancestors was the idea that they could be like God's. They could set up their, on their own as if they had created themselves, be their own masters, invent some sort of happiness for themselves outside God, apart from God. And out of that hopeless attempt has come the long and terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. Listen, the first place that sin and brokenness shows up in the world, the first place failure shows up is about what we think God is. Which is why this whole series is so significantly important to our spirituality. 
if we have a different view of God, if we think God has been lying to us all those years, it will fracture everything. So a question arises, right? We've all had these significant moments of failure. Maybe they're little. Maybe it's when you blew up on your family when you were driving to church this morning. But maybe it's bigger. Maybe it's the moments on those websites that no one around you knows about. Maybe it's the the broken relationships that you just keep dumping gas on the fire. It's the place of hurt and pain that not has been caused to you, but that you have caused to someone else. See, the next thing that finds its way into this cycle of brokenness that we see in Genesis, and I think we still see it today, we move quickly from failure almost immediately to shame. Think about what happens in the garden as soon as they eat the fruit. It says, then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden of the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. This cycle plays out not just in Adam and Eve. It plays out all throughout the scriptures. You think just a few, just a, I think just a chapter later, Cain and Abel, these two brothers, Cain becomes jealous of, of what his brother is doing. Cain murders his brother. And God shows up, and Cain doesn't physically hide, but he hides from responsibility and from his emotions. God says, where is your brother? And he just says, am I my brother's keeper? Am I in charge of him? Is it my job to look out for the well-being of those close to me? To which God would say, "Uh, yeah. Adam and Eve do it. Cain and Abel do it. You think about Jonah, the great story, man and a fish. God comes to Jonah and says, I have a task for you. And how many of us have been like, we would love God to show up one day at our house and tell us just exactly what he wants us to do. I don't think we do. Jonah gets that to happen. God says, go to Nineveh. What does Jonah do? Go the other way. He hides. Not only does he go the other way, he ends up hiding in a boat. He goes through this whole adventure. What we know about failure is that it always leads to shame. In the words of the writer of Genesis, it always makes us want to hide. And here's the unfortunate thing. As I've talked with countless Christians over the years, we so often confuse conviction with shame. So often we get it backwards. We think that when we like feel this pressure, this weight of of something we've messed up, that it's conviction. But the way I hear most Christians talk about it is a shame. I, I would define conviction this way. It's the inner working of our soul partnered with the Holy Spirit, identifying something wrong in our life and reminding us of who we are truly meant to be. It reminds us of who God has always intended us to be. But when I hear people talk about conviction, it sounds more like shame. And shame is the inner working of anxiety and humiliation, identifying something we have done wrong and repeatedly reminding us that that is who we are. I, uh, believe it or not, I have a brother who is, in fact, 21 years older than me. He's much older. He could be my dad. He's not. I sh- that's a weird way to say that. Anyways, um, I have a brother who's 21 years older than me. And I remember when my brother first got married, one of his wife's complaints about my brother was that he would constantly leave these white plastic shirt hangers all around the house. He'd be rushing to get out of the door, and he'd leave them all over the place. My brother worked for this large car company, and he was one of their buyers, so he would travel all around the country and, and purchase cars for him. 
So one day his company sent a, you know, a town car to pick him up. He was, he was like, oh man, this is really cool. They're picking me up. And he gets out to the car. The driver steps out. He takes his bags. He says, hey, are you Brian? My brother says, yeah, I'm Brian. He says, hey, your wife wanted me to give you this. Hands him a white shirt hanger. My brother's like, that's really, like, haha, it's funny, but that's weird. He gets to the airport. One of his coworkers is meeting him there before they go through security. Hey, Brian, what's going on? He says, hey, man, not much. And he goes, hey, your wife told me to give you this. Hands him a white shirt hanger. My brother's like, okay, that's like the extent of the joke, right? Like, we're done. He gets through security. He meets a bunch of his other coworkers. His boss is there. His boss's boss is there. And they all go, hey, Brian, your wife told us to give you these. They pull out hangers. By the time he gets to his destination, he's collected half a dozen hangers at this point. To make a very long story short, he goes around this car selling convention. He has collected close to, to two dozen hangers by the time it's done of people that his wife has somehow conned into giving him white hangers all around. Which is exactly how shame works. Shame is the voice that says, you can't forget this. You've messed up. You've slipped up. You've sinned. Let me just keep reminding you of it. This is what shame does to us. And if it's not eventually confronted with truth, it will continue to fester and last as long as it has to. But here's the beautiful thing about the God of Christianity is that God does not speak in the language of shame. He, in fact, listen, some of you have believed that that's how God talks. You messed up and you immediately have the feeling of like, oh my gosh, I'm not good. I'm messed up. I can never, I can never fulfill all the things that God has for me. And what I've seen so many times is that's when people step away from church. They distance themselves. They step out of a small group. They stop serving because what they're afraid of is that everyone knows and now they will never be able to forget it because that is what God is speaking to them. But our God actually says something completely different. He doesn't say you need to hide because you should be ashamed. Psalm 32, I would love to read this whole Psalm to you, but we don't have the time to. Verse seven, he says these words, you are a hiding place for me. God, you are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. And then the psalmist switches language. He's now writing from the perspective of God. God then says to us, when we hide in him, we don't hide from him. He says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. What our God says is that you don't actually have to hide from him when you fail. You can hide in him. This is a completely different God than the God many of us were taught about. You don't have to step away. You don't have to run. You don't have to evade church. You can actually come closer to God. And here's why. Because after failure and after shame, after we fail, after we experience shame, there is one inevitable thing that always happens. God pursues you. God pursues you. He comes after you. God does this in the garden, but the Lord God called to the man as he's moving around, where are you? And what most people have concluded about this This is not meant to be read as God showing up like an angry, abusive dad. Where are you? This is God showing up like it's a normal day, looking for his kids whom he loves and saying, where are you? 
He's confused why they're hiding. God will always pursue you. And this is not just religious nicety. This is who Jesus is. That God came in human flesh, not to, not to get rid of who humans are, but to redeem every part of who we are. He comes as God in the flesh, born as a baby, walks around, teaches, heals, brings goodness into the lives of people. This is who our God is. One who steps into the midst of frailty and brokenness. But I think we are very similar to the people who experience Jesus. We don't always get it. In fact, many times when we think about Jesus or we read his stories, we think, oh, those are very sweet, that's so nice, but I don't know that it actually can transform the way I experience failure. It can transform the way that I experience shame. And so what Jesus often did was instead of just shooting straight with people, he would tell them a parable. He would tell them a story to get their minds to sort of wrap around this idea that God was in fact with them. In Luke chapter 15, he tells three of them. The way that Luke starts is it says that he's surrounded by Pharisees and scribes. And these Pharisees and scribes, these religious leaders, are honestly furious because what Jesus is doing is eating with sinners and tax collectors. And they couldn't figure out why. But if this is the God who pursues even the most broken among us, I think we know why. This is just what God does. And a total aside, this is th these moments in the life of Jesus are a reminder as religious people that if we forget what it was like to have failed and to experience shame, we will never be able to understand the people who show up at church who are just now finding God for the first time. So Jesus, he says to them, them skeptical of, of him eating with sinners and, and messed up people, and he says to them, suppose that you were a shepherd and you had a hundred sheep and one of them wandered off. He asked the question, would you not leave the 99 to find the one? Which we know the resounding answer is supposed to be yes. He says, and when you find the one, you would celebrate. He then tells a story of a woman who has these coins and she loses a coin. And Jesus says, would she not go all around the house cleaning and, and lifting furniture, trying to just find this one coin? And when she does, she would be happy. And if you're a skeptic like me at all, you hear these stories and go, God, that's not really how we are broken in the world today, though. Because a sheep is just a sheep. Sheep's just sort of sheep. They just wander. They're not being malicious. They're not out to hurt anyone. They're not trying to, to wound anyone. They're not gossiping about people. They're not stealing things. They're not lying. I, you think about a coin. A coin is a completely inanimate object. Jesus, a coin has no soul. This is not a great illustration. And it's as if what Jesus knew in that moment was that there would be people in the room who said those very things. And so he tells one more story. He tells the story of a father who has two sons. One of them is super diligent, focused, hardworking, does all the things, never complains, never asks a question, does all the things right. 
And he has a second son who's just restless. Wants more than what he has, is discontent, is angry at his dad. And one day the younger son comes into the house and he says, Dad, you know, I wish you were dead. Because at least if you were dead, I could sell this place. I could be done with it. We could be over it. I wouldn't have to do any of this stuff. And for some bizarre reason, the dad looks at the son and says, okay. He gives him his share of it in his inheritance. The son is, is sort of shocked that his dad has done this, but he leaves. The way that Jesus tells it, this son goes off into the city and he blows all the money that he has. And before you know it, he's working as a slave. He's in such bad shape that he looks at the food of the pigs that he feeds every day to just have a home. And he wishes he could just eat that. Meanwhile, his father is back home. And the way that Jesus tells it, he uses this phrasing of the son, he travels to a far off distant country. And the father has this moment where he realizes that his son is in a far off and distant place. And when his son comes to his senses, the father begins to go after him. And the way we've often taught this story is that it sort of is like the father sitting on the porch in his rocking chair and his son arrives at the end of the driveway. And he gets up and he greets him. I would actually propose to you that what Jesus is doing is telling something much more radical, which is the father somehow has this miraculous shift in, in thinking about his son and he gets his clothes on, his boots on, and he gets in his car and drives across the country to find his kid. And the son shows up and all he can say to his dad is, I'm no longer worthy to even be called your servant. And the dad says, that's just not true. He throws his cloak on him, puts his ring on him, throws a party for him, celebrates because he is home. Guys, this is who God is. You are not, I don't care how much you've messed up. You are not stuck in some far distant land with no hope. The father is coming for you. This is the great pursuit of who God is. He will continue to search for you no matter how much you have failed, no matter how much shame you feel. The God of this story will always pursue you to the very end. Let's respond in worship and then Pastor Andrew is gonna lead us to the table. to the altar, the Father.
Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It occurs to me as Rory was preaching, I was thinking when the Lord God says to the man and to the woman, where are you? It's not like he doesn't know. He's trying to gather up some new information that he doesn't have. They need to identify where they are so that the moment of redemption can begin to take place. And our God is not confused about where we are. He knows it. The question is, can we locate ourselves so as to come back to the Lord? And when we prepare our hearts for communion, in the act of confession, that's what we're doing. God already knows where we are. What we're doing is we're naming it so that that moment of coming together can take place. And so church, as we prepare our hearts for communion, I want to invite you to pray this prayer of repentance with me. Say it with me. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole hearts. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. And for the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways 
to the glory of your name. If you prayed that prayer by faith, can you say amen real loud this morning? Amen. Now, here is the Lord's answer to us in that prayer. That on the night that he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus, he gave thanks and he took the bread and he broke it. Can we break it together? And he said to his disciples, take this, all of you, and eat. This is my body broken for you. Do this whenever you eat it in remembrance of me. Can we take the bread together? And in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, drink from this, all of you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, not in your blood, where you should have suffered and died, where you should have been broken, where your life should have been shattered beyond all recognition because of what you did. I stepped in for you. As the old song goes, he interposed his precious blood, this cup is the new covenant in his blood, and it's poured out for each and every one of us for the wiping away of sins to make it as though we have never failed, clean and new in God's sight. And so Jesus says, do this whenever you drink in remembrance of me, the cup of salvation by which we step into the new creation. Can we take it together this morning? And can we now begin to give the Lord thanks for what he's done and for who he is and for making us new? We love you, Lord Jesus. Let's sing it together. Let's sing our doxology to close. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him. hallowed be thy name. Could you lift your hands, church, and receive this blessing as you go. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, grace, mercy, and peace be with you. Can we give it up for Rory Green this morning, bringing the word to us. Rory Green, we love you. Thank you. If you need prayer for anything this morning, friends, I want to invite our altar ministry team to come forward. And uh, they'd love to pray with you for anything you're going through. Remember to see us at Connect Central if you're new on the way out. New Life East, second birthday is next Sunday. Invite like 100 friends to that. It's going to be so much fun. Go in peace, my friends, to love and serve the Lord. We'll see you next week.